Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. World equity markets continue their early year strength. The Dow Jones up again today. The index is now up 1.7% so far in 2023. It's bringing up the rear of the major indexes. The S&P 500 doing a bit better, up 2.1%. And the NASDAQ is up 2.5%. The leader is the Russell 2000, which is up 3.5% on the year. Now, one of the reasons that you're seeing more strength in the S&P than in the Dow is we have gotten a bid in some of the beaten down stocks, but the fact that those types of stocks are the ones that are leading the rally, basically the most overvalued, heavily shorted names are the ones that are rallying. To me, that indicates the unsustainable nature of the current rally when all you have is short covering and maybe some speculators trying to get in for a quick buck and ride these stocks up. For example, the Kathy Wood ARK Innovation ETF is up 7.6% so far this year. That likely means that when the momentum runs out and then in fact turns, that these stocks are going to come crashing down for new lows and likely take the major indexes down with them. But a continuation of the trend from last year Foreign markets are outperforming. Foreign stock markets are doing better than the S&P 500. And in fact, the best performing stocks of all are the gold stocks. That continues. The GDX, as I'm recording this podcast after the market closed on Tuesday, is up 11% on the year. The GDXJ, which is the junior miners, is up a little bit more, up 11.3%. Gold itself is up 3% so far in 2023. It closed Tuesday at about 1788. That's a 3% gain on the year. That's better than the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ. It's only lagging the Russell 2000. But if gold and gold stocks are the top performers, that doesn't indicate that you have a healthy market. And in fact, maybe we're going to get a reality check on Thursday. When we get the release of the December CPI, that will be the last read on domestic inflation for 2022. And there is some continued optimism that we're not going to get much in the way of inflation. The expectation is for an unchanged reading during the month for the headline number. And the core, X, food and energy, is supposed to rise by 0.3. 
the year-over-year rise in the CPI is supposed to come down from 7.1 in November to 6.6 in December, and X Food and Energy is supposed to drop from 6.0 in November to 5.7. Now, if we don't get that type of reduction in the official inflation numbers, that could send the market into a tailspin because everybody is hanging their hat on the fact that inflation is going to come down in 2023. And because inflation is going to come down, the Fed is not going to have to be as aggressive as many people suspect. The Fed will be able to ease up on the rate hikes. And in fact, if enough progress is made on inflation, many people expect the Fed to reverse course and begin cutting interest rates before the end of the year. Now, I agree with that camp. I think there is a good chance that the Fed will cut rates. In fact, there's probably an even better chance that they will go back to quantitative easing, whether they cut rates or not. But I do expect the Federal Reserve to ease policy in 2023, but not because of a victory in the war against inflation. No, they're going to surrender. Inflation is going to win that war. The Fed's going to run to fight another battle. At least it's going to try to fight because it's going to lose that battle too. And that battle is going to be recession, maybe financial crisis, maybe a battle to try to prop up the U.S. government, whose insolvency is becoming a bigger problem with rising interest rates. In fact, I looked up on the national debt clock, and as of right now, the national debt is about to hit $31.5 trillion. In fact, by the time a lot of people listen to this podcast, it will be over $31.5 trillion. And that number is getting bigger and bigger, but the cost of financing that debt is getting bigger and bigger because of the rate hikes. Not only the rate hikes that we've already had, but the rate hikes that are going to come. And because servicing this debt is going to become so problematic in 2023, that's another reason that the Federal Reserve is going to back off of its rate hikes and, in fact, may have to go back to quantitative easing because they will need to buy treasuries that private buyers don't want at interest rates that the U.S. government can't afford. But while I'm on the topic of credit and debt, we got the consumer credit numbers for the month of November that were released yesterday. And we had another huge increase in credit card debt in particular. Total credit card debt is now $925 billion, or at least it was at the end of November. And that's just $2 billion below the all-time record high, which was set in the fourth quarter of 2019 at $927 billion. But back then, the Fed still had interest rates at zero. So credit card rates were also a lot lower. As of the end of November, they hit an all-time record high. The average credit card interest rate is now 19.6%. That's the average. So obviously, some people are paying higher than 20%. So we have near record debt, but we have record high interest rates. And of course, I'm sure that we have record debt by now because it doesn't count the debt from December. And that was when a lot of consumers had to buy Christmas presents or take vacations. And I'm sure the cost of a lot of that travel and those gifts were put on a credit card. So I'm sure we're at all-time record highs. In fact, sometime in 2023, I expect credit card debt to surpass 
$1 trillion. But what's also a big deal about this increase, and the year-over-year increase is 15%. That is the biggest year-over-year gain in credit card debt in 20 years. And in fact, if you look at total consumer credit, it's up 16.9%. And I think this is understating it because a lot of consumers have been taking advantage of buy now and pay later. And I don't even know if that counts as credit. I know that those buy now, pay later companies are not reporting to credit agencies the amount of money that their customers have committed to pay later. And in fact, if it wasn't for the proliferation of all these buy now and pay later companies, I'm sure credit card debt would already be a lot higher because a lot of the merchandise that was purchased using that gimmick would have been put on a credit card. And the irony of it is most of these buy now, pay later companies, when it comes time to paying later, you end up paying on your credit card. So all these buy now, pay later companies, when it's time for the consumer to pay, all those charges are going to end up on credit cards. There's just a delay between the time the consumer buys something and when the amount that he owes shows up on his credit card. The other really disturbing factor in the November credit numbers was that 46% of credit card holders now are carrying a balance every month. And that's up from 39% in the prior year. So that's a big jump in the number of people who have a balance. And that's significant because if you pay off your credit card every month, the interest rate is irrelevant because you don't get charged interest. In fact, you end up getting an interest-free loan from the credit card company. For example, I put a lot of stuff on my credit card. And a lot of people do that too because they get points or they get airline miles or cash back. There are a lot of reasons that people use credit cards to buy things, even though they have the cash. They just pay the bill in full when they get it. But if you look at how these billing cycles work, as long as you don't carry a balance, let's say I buy something today on my credit card. By the time I actually have to pay the bill, and maybe it's six or seven weeks later that the bill is due, that includes that charge, there's no interest during that six or seven weeks. So I get that loan. Now, that loan is a lot more valuable today in a higher rate environment than it was when rates are at zero. But here's the problem for people who carry your balance. The minute you carry a balance on your card, meaning you didn't pay it off when it was due and there was some money left over. Not only do you pay interest on the balance, but every time you charge something, you immediately pay interest on the money from the day you charge it. So in other words, if I'm carrying a balance on my credit card because I didn't pay it off in full and I go and buy something tomorrow and then I don't get a bill for six or seven weeks, the first time I get my bill and I see that charge from six or seven weeks ago, it's already got six or seven weeks worth of interest tacked onto it. So even if I pay the bill in full at that moment, the interest is already there because it was assessed from the minute I charged something because I had a balance. But if you pay your balance off in full every month, then that never happens. But because we have more and more people who can no longer afford to do that, credit card interest is becoming even more problematic just at the moment in time where it's at an all-time record high. So the interest really piles up. And given the fact that interest rates on credit cards are now at record highs, 
and more and more people are now incurring interest charges who weren't even incurring them in the past, but they've got them now because they can't afford to pay their bills off. They were able to afford to pay them off last year, maybe because they had some stimulus money that they used to pay off their credit card bills, but that well is run dry. And so more and more people are having to carry a balance, which means more and more people are having to pay interest. And when you're talking about 20% interest, that is an enormous additional cost. That doesn't even show up in the inflation rate because everybody who is forced to put something on a credit card because they can't afford it, whatever the price is, they're paying that plus 20% per year. So if you carry that balance for many years, think about that. After four or five years or so, you practically doubled the price that you paid because of all the interest that you've paid along the way. So the fact that credit card debt is skyrocketing as savings rates are plunging, this is very problematic for the economy. It shows that Americans are struggling to make ends meet. Not only do they have multiple jobs, you have moonlighting surging as people are taking second and third jobs, but even that's not enough. Even with multiple paychecks, they still can't pay the bills, so they are resorting to credit cards. But another important fact that nobody is talking about when it comes to credit is that credit is expanding, particularly consumer credit. It is growing at a near record pace. Now, when I talk about inflation on this podcast, I often talk about inflation as defined by an expansion of the money supply, which is what it is. But inflation is also an expansion of the supply of credit. In fact, a lot of the dictionaries that used to define inflation correctly defined it as an expansion of the supply of money and credit. Credit was a big part of the equation because people could use credit to buy things and bid up prices. And that, in fact, is what's happening. Consumers are dealing with rising prices, not so much by cutting back and buying less, although in some circumstances they are, but they're also taking advantage of credit so that they can keep on buying the same amount and just making up the difference by borrowing money. So the Federal Reserve is still keeping interest rates too low and allowing credit to grow too plentifully so that additional credit is available to consumers to continue to bid up higher prices. And so they're not being priced out of the markets because they're staying in the market because of their access to credit. So in other words, the inflation is continuing in the credit markets. What the Fed really needs to do with its rate hikes is raise rates significantly enough to cut off all that consumer credit. Credit card companies have to stop lending people money so those people will spend less and save more. But as long as credit is plentiful, available, and even though interest rates are 20%, apparently that's not discouraging the borrowers. What we need is for the lenders to wake up to the reality that a lot of the people who are borrowing this money are never going to pay it back. We need credit card companies to cut off these consumers because I think most consumers are going to keep on borrowing as long as the credit card companies are dumb enough to keep on lending. And one of the big moral hazards that nobody really talks about in the credit card industry is the more money that you owe on the credit card, once you've gone beyond the point where you know you can't pay it back, so you're already in so deep that you know you can never repay your debt and that eventually you're going to file for bankruptcy, between now and then, well, the sky's the limit. 
just run up as big a tab as you possibly can. Because if you know at the end of the day, you're filing bankruptcy and you're not going to pay for any of the stuff that you buy using your credit card, you are going to buy as much stuff on that credit card as you can before you file bankruptcy. So it's up to these credit card companies to take a look at how much debt their customers have already racked up and cut them off. Because once you know you're just playing with the house's money, if I have $50,000 in credit card debt and I'm going to default on it, well, why not run it up to 100000 if I can? It's not going to hurt my future credit any worse to go bankrupt owing 100000 than it will owing 50000 So I can still borrow the extra fifty. I might as well do it because after I file for bankruptcy, I can't do that anymore because now I've ruined my credit for a while. So I might as well buy as much as I can now, knowing that after I go bankrupt, I'm not going to be able to buy anything. And when you buy a bunch of stuff on a credit card and then don't pay for it because you declare bankruptcy, the credit card company doesn't take your stuff. Everything that you bought, you get to keep. And so there is a massive moral hazard there. Because if you know you're not going to pay your credit card bill, you're basically getting stuff for nothing. Well, if you can get stuff for nothing, well, buy as much as you can. Why not buy it if it doesn't cost anything? The reason that people don't buy things is because they're too expensive. If everything was free, well, you would take whatever you can get. And that's what happens. In fact, that may be one of the reasons that we're seeing a lot of consumer spending, even though the underlying economy is weak, the consumers are simply doing the smart thing. Because they have so much debt, they know they're never going to pay it back. They're going to go bankrupt and they want to go out with a bang and they want to buy as much as they can now. So this is not a sign of how strong the economy is, but how weak the economy is. It's not a sign of consumer strength. It's a sign of weakness, but it also proves that the consumers aren't idiots. They will take advantage of any opportunities they have. And that is exactly what they're doing when they're borrowing money that they know they're never going to have to repay and effectively getting stuff for free. And they don't look at it as a crime because what they're doing is not illegal. And since it's not illegal, well, they, they figure they might as well do it. And if they don't do it, well, their friends are doing it. So why be the only honorable person? Because what are they going to get for taking the moral high ground? Nothing. And since no one who chooses the low road is going to be punished, when you come to that fork, the direction is obvious. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. But the more significant issue here is not just that all this additional consumer credit and debt is indicative of a weak economy. It's also indicative that the Fed is losing its battle against inflation because the Fed has to rein in credit. The Fed has to raise interest rates in order to restrict credit. That's the purpose of these rate hikes. Again, what the Fed needs to do is discourage people from spending and encourage people to save. That's the purpose of these rising interest rates. But that's not happening. The Fed is raising interest rates, but consumers don't care. They're just borrowing more money and spending more money. So this credit supply is expanding, and that's going to continue to put upward pressure 
on prices. The Fed is making no real headway in its battle against inflation. All that we've seen is a temporary correction in commodity prices, a downturn in house prices, but beneath the surface, the inflationary forces are as strong as ever. In fact, they're getting stronger. And so all these people who are expecting a meaningful reduction in the inflation rate in 2023 aren't going to get what they expect. After a brief downturn in the official numbers, we're going to see a surge as consumers continue to spend borrowed money, but more importantly, as the dollar tanks putting huge upward pressure, not only on commodities, causing a reversal and a run to new highs, but on the record level of imports, because everything America buys, and of course, most of the stuff, the merchandise that we buy is made abroad, all that stuff is going to get a lot more expensive as the dollar falls. And the other reason, of course, that people think that inflation may come down in 2023 is they think the unemployment rate will go up and they expect a rise in unemployment to bring down inflation. In fact, many people still think that's the Fed's goal, that the Fed's plan is to fight inflation by fighting employment, by causing an increase in unemployment, by causing a slowdown at the rate at which wages are rising. People think that rising wages cause inflation, and so the Fed needs to slow down wage growth with its rate hikes. But rising wages don't cause inflation. In fact, looking at wages going up and concluding that's the reason for inflation is like somebody who's sick and they have a fever, and so they take their temperature with a thermometer, and then the thermometer says 102, and they blame their fever on the thermometer. Well, it's not the thermometer's fault. It's just reflecting your temperature. Well, that's the same thing with wages. Rising wages aren't causing inflation. Inflation is causing wages to rise. So the wages are simply taking the economy's temperature when it comes to inflation. Now, you can't fight inflation by trying to stop wages from going up. That would be like trying to fight your fever by smashing your thermometer or maybe lowering the reading by putting the thermometer in a cup of ice water. That's not going to work. If you ignore the underlying illness and just try to cover up the symptoms or deny they're there, then you're going to get sicker. The same thing is going to happen with inflation. If the Fed is thinking that rising wages are the problem and it tries to solve that or cover that up, then the underlying actual problem that is causing wages to go up is going to continue, and that's inflation. And in fact, the reality is, to the extent that the Fed does succeed in putting people out of work, that is actually going to be inflationary because people are going to stop working, but they're not going to stop spending. They're going to continue to have access to money, either through the government or through credit cards, and they're going to keep on spending, fueling demand, but they're not going to be producing. And so you get less supply of goods and services and you get more demand. What the Fed really wants to do with employment is maintain it. In fact, we need more people productively employed, not fewer. It's just that the people who are employed have to stop spending their paychecks. They have to take more of their paychecks and put it in the bank, pay off their credit card debt. That's what they have to do. If people remain employed but stop spending, that's great because that means they're still working, they're still productive, so we have more supply, but we have a reduction in demand because they're not spending every nickel they make and then borrowing even more than that. 
We want consumers to pay back what they've borrowed, to spend less than they make, and save the difference. But none of that is happening. And that just indicates that despite all this wishful thinking and happy talk on Wall Street, the Fed is making no progress in the fight against inflation. Inflation is winning that fight, and it's only a matter of time until the Fed surrenders. But I want to change gears slightly and talk a little politics. The 15th time was the charm for Kevin McCarthy to become the Speaker of the House of Representatives, the third highest office in the land, because the Speaker of the House is two heartbeats away from the presidency of the United States. And it was a big drama because there was a group of conservative Republican holdouts that didn't want to immediately vote for the confirmation of Kevin McCarthy. So it took 15 votes to put him over the top. Of course, the Democrats were unified every time they all voted for the same candidate. In fact, I forget who that candidate was, but it was irrelevant because the Democrats knew that who they were voting for was going to lose. So it didn't matter. So there was no reason not to be unified so they could try to compare themselves to the Republican Party and say, hey, we're all unified and these guys are all over the place. They can't get their act together. Look how much division there is within the Republican Party. And we don't have that kind of division. We've all come together and we've unified around the same candidate. Yes, it's easy to unify around a candidate that everybody knows is going to lose because it doesn't matter what the Democrats were more concerned about was making a point and in trying to make the Republicans look bad because they couldn't unify around a candidate who was going to win the way they could unify around a candidate who was guaranteed to lose. But a lot of people in the Republican Party were probably upset that the party looked bad and they had hoped that all of these Republicans would just fall into line. After all, McCarthy had almost all the votes and it was only a small fraction of the Republicans that wanted somebody else. And I don't know to what extent they really wanted somebody else, although if they had a choice in the matter, they probably would have gone with somebody else, but they didn't have the votes. But what they tried to do was leverage their political power to try to get some concessions from McCarthy. And ultimately, they won. They got the concessions that they wanted. And so I think it is a win for the Republican Party, although it may be a victory in name only because it remains to be seen whether anything is actually going to be accomplished. One of the main reasons that these Republicans were trying to exact these concessions was to slow down the growth of government spending or maybe even reduce government spending. This is particularly important in the aftermath of that $1.7 trillion reconciliation bill that was crammed down everybody's throats in the House last minute. This is not the way legislation is supposed to be made. In fact, we shouldn't even allow this type of spending. I personally think that any time the government wants to spend money, that particular program should be separate from every other program. So each member of the House has to vote up or down on each item of spending. What I don't like is when you cram all the spending into one big bill and then it's a take it or leave it. Either you agree to all this pork barrel legislation or the entire government gets shut down. And what happens is every member of Congress who has its own favorite piece of pork, they just throw it all in there. 
and it's just one big pork stew and everybody has to drink it because it's either all or nothing. It would be much better if each government spending bill had to stand on its own and we made each representative have to cast a vote up or down to spend that money. Because if we did it that way, there would be a lot less spending because a lot of these bills would not be able to get the support to pass, which would be a good thing. But when they take a lot of spending that never would pass and they shove it in as part of this massive bill that nobody has a chance to read, and if you don't vote for it, the whole government shuts down, that is a recipe for disaster because the government is on autopilot for more and more spending. And now all of that government spending has blown up into this record high inflation. The root cause of that inflation other than the Federal Reserve, is the reckless spending coming out of Congress. Because if Congress wasn't spending all this money, then the Federal Reserve wouldn't have to print all this money to monetize the debt. Of course, if the Federal Reserve wasn't willing to print all this money to monetize the debt, interest rates would rise so much that Congress would be forced to cut spending. So they're both equally to blame. They're both equally enabling the other. Personally, I put more of the responsibility on the Fed. After all, the congressmen are trying to get reelected. And so they're going to act irresponsibly because their political careers are on the line. But the Federal Reserve is supposed to be independent. None of the Fed governors or the chairman of the Federal Reserve has to be elected. They're not accountable to the voters, so they should be able to do the right thing. So it's up to the Federal Reserve to basically be the adults in the room. They're the chaperones at the congressional prom where they're all trying to spike the punch bowl. It's up to the Fed to make sure that that doesn't happen. But instead, oftentimes, it's the Fed that's spiking the punch bowl. In fact, if you remember during COVID, Fed Chair Powell was actually pounding the table. He was basically encouraging Congress to run bigger deficits and letting them know in advance that whatever spending bills they wanted to pass, he was going to finance it. He was going to print money and do unlimited quantitative easing so that he was willing to make sure every check that Congress wanted to write to buy votes that none of them bounced. And so I put more of the blame on the Fed, even though it takes two to tango. But the point is that some of these congressional Republicans understand that spending is the problem. They didn't like what happened with that reconciliation bill, and they want to try to make sure that a Republican House of Representatives doesn't do the same thing. So there's a lot of concessions that are geared to making it easier to rein in government spending. And there's also stuff in there about the debt ceiling and a way to try to stop the automatic rubber stamp increasing or suspension of the death ceiling and tried to tie it to some type of spending cuts. But at the end of the day, all of this stuff ends up being a gimmick because the Republicans for 20, 30 years at least have come up with one gimmick after another to try to slow down the growth of spending and put some limit on the national debt. Yet spending keeps going up, the national debt keeps going up, and none of these gimmicks ever work. And when push comes to shove, when the Republicans are actually put in a position to reduce government spending or cut the debt, they never do it. In fact, they do the opposite. The most recent example happened when Donald Trump won the presidency. And during his first two years, he had a Republican House 
and a Republican Congress. Did we get any cuts in government spending? No, we got increases in government spending. We didn't only get increases in military spending, we got increases in welfare spending. A Republican House and a Republican Senate with a Republican president that could have pushed through cuts in government spending. They could have tried to make America great again by making government small again, or at least smaller than it was. They could have done something substantial with their majority and cut government spending, eliminated some agencies and departments. Not only did they not eliminate any, they added one, the Space Force. We needed a Space Force like a hole in the head. The last thing we should have been doing is spending money to wage war in space when we can't even afford war on Earth because we're broke. We're borrowing all the money. So whatever we spent on the Space Force, that had to be borrowed too. And all of that is why the inflation is as high as it is and is going higher. But this isn't the first time the Republicans have let us down. All of these gimmicks, when you ultimately at the end of the day have to deal with the spending cuts, they don't happen. Nobody wants to vote for them. In fact, sometimes what Republicans are willing to do is vote for a bill that has some automatic reduction in future government spending. So there's no cut right now, but in some future year, there's going to be a cut. And then they take credit for cutting spending, even though nothing has actually been cut. So no voter has actually been deprived of some benefit that he was used to getting. So a vote to cut future spending is not nearly as difficult to cast as one that cuts spending right now. But then as we get closer in time to when those cuts are supposed to kick in, then whatever Congress is in session votes to undo those spending cuts before they ever actually kick in. And so some congressmen got to take credit for cutting spending, even though the spending cuts never actually happen. That's why no bills to cut spending should even count as spending cuts unless they apply to the current budget year. Because all of these bills to cut spending in the out years, the spending never gets cut. Now, are there a few Republicans that are willing to vote for cuts to government spending? Yeah, there's a handful of them, but there's not enough to actually make a difference. Because most of the Republicans, just like the Democrats, what they care about most is getting reelected. And the last thing they want to do is put their own reelection in jeopardy by cutting spending. It's much easier to keep on spending and tax the public through inflation. See, the Republicans, they don't want to raise taxes because they want to run as low tax. They want to spend, but they don't want to tax. Well, if you're willing to vote for increased spending, you are in effect voting for increased taxes. You're just not being honest about it because you don't vote for inflation. But when you vote for spending programs that aren't paid for by taxes, you are in fact voting for inflation because you are voting to tax your constituents through inflation, except the constituents don't realize they're being taxed because the government has succeeded in changing the definition of inflation from an expansion of the money supply to an increase in prices. And so when prices go up, people don't blame the government. They don't realize that there's a connection between government spending, deficits, and inflation. The government spends money and they don't pay for it by raising my taxes. They're raising my prices through inflation. The Democrats, of course, they're willing to raise taxes, but only on the rich. 
Well, the problem is the rich now have a lot of money and they give a lot of that money to the Democrats. And so the Democrats, they don't want to tax the rich either. I mean, they want to talk about taxing the rich, but since they're getting so much campaign money from the rich, well, then they don't want to raise taxes on the rich. And of course, the problem is the rich are already paying a lot of taxes. And when you raise taxes on them, you may actually get less revenue from them because of the impact taxation has on their incentives and on their income and the degree to which they try to avoid paying taxes rather than generate income. And of course, when you alter the behavior of the rich to avoid paying taxes, oftentimes what happens is it hurts the middle class and the poor because instead of making certain investments that would benefit the economy and create jobs, they don't do that because they're trying to mitigate their taxes instead. And so the Democrats want to spend a lot of money. They're not willing to raise taxes. The Republicans aren't willing to raise taxes, but they'd also rather spend money than cut back spending. And in fact, even a lot of programs that Republicans opposed before they were passed, once they've been passed and they're in law, they don't want to vote to get rid of them. See, it's one thing to vote not to give somebody something. But once they get that something that you didn't want them to have, it's much more difficult to vote to take it away. Because if people don't have something and you vote against giving it to them, they don't really necessarily look at it as a loss because they never had it in the first place. But once they have a benefit and now you try to take it away, that is perceived as a real loss. That's why government programs never go away because even the people who are opposed to them originally, once the public gets used to it, they never want to take it away. Think about all the Republicans who were opposed to Social Security before it was passed. It was a horrible idea. It came around during the Great Depression. A lot of Republicans opposed it for the right reasons. It's the same thing with Medicare. A lot of Republicans opposed that in the 1960s. Well, how many Republicans are against Social Security now? None. How many are against Medicare? None. How many would vote to take it away? None. Now, obviously, these are not the same Republicans who voted against it in the first place, but the party has changed. But remember, a lot of Republicans voted against Obamacare when it was proposed, but how many really want to get rid of it now? They tried to get rid of part of it, but they couldn't. And part of the problem, apart from Romney being the holdout, is even though the Republicans wanted to get rid of Obamacare, they wanted to hold on to the worst part, which was the idea that insurance companies couldn't discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions. So the same people that voted against that, once people knew they didn't have to buy insurance until after they got sick, and so healthy people knew they could save their money by waiting to buy insurance until they get sick, once people had that ability, a lot of Republicans didn't want to vote to take it away. That's why Milton Friedman said that there's nothing so permanent as a temporary government program. Because once politicians give voters something, it's nearly impossible for any future politician to take it away. One final point that I wanted to make, though, when it comes to unification and when you see the Democrats trying to make fun of the Republicans because they're not unified, it's a lot easier for the Democrats to unify because all the Democrats want more government. That's what they're about. They're about big government and the government spending more money. It's just a factor of degree. So some Democrats want to grow government more slowly than other Democrats, but they all want more stuff from government. That's basically what they have in common and why they're Democrats. And so 
if all the Democrats want more programs and more government, it's easy to get them to unify around a program or a bill because you just stick in what everybody wants. Everybody wants more government and everybody gets more government. And, and so they can be unified around increasing government spending. But when you have the Republican Party, you do have some Republicans who actually want less government. They believe in the free market and they want to reduce government. They think government is too big and needs to be smaller. No Democrat thinks government is too big. They all want it to be bigger. It's just a question of how much bigger. But a lot of Republicans think government is much too big and needs to be smaller. So it's a lot harder to get all the Republicans to agree when you have some of them who want to cut government spending. They don't want any increases from anybody. They want less government. They want smaller deficits. And so you're always going to have some type of division. But unfortunately, the number of Republicans who actually want to shrink government are never a large enough number to make it into the majority. And at the end of the day, they always end up caving to the majority so that they can be unified with the party. And I think they hope that maybe they'll be able to just make a difference by helping to shift the trajectory of the party. But ultimately, they never succeed in cutting government spending. But I think some of these Republicans, too, that are in districts that are very conservative or libertarian minded, they know that they have to at least go through the motions. They have to at least do something to show that they're trying to cut government spending and shrink the deficit, even if their efforts are going to be in vain, because if they just go along and they don't do anything, they may end up losing their seat in a primary because they leave that window open for somebody to come out and say, hey, what's this guy doing? He's voting for all the big spending. He's really a rhino. He's a Democrat. So some of these Republicans who are in those kind of districts, they have to move to the right and try to at least feign an effort and maybe it's sincere in their efforts, even though it's never going to deliver the outcome. But at least they have to do something so they can justify their being in office and prevent somebody else from running to their right in a primary and then taking their seat, especially if it's a district where the Republicans is going to win for sure. It's the primary and not the general election that counts. But none of this is a problem for the Democrats. In fact, their problem is the opposite. If they don't vote for enough spending, they're going to get challenged in the primary by somebody who gets to their left and says, hey, this guy doesn't want enough government. He didn't vote for enough programs, and I want even more. I'm a democratic socialist. So if anything, if there's a Democrat in a highly democratic district, he's not worried about the general election. He's just worried about the primary. And so he has to go further to the left to make sure nobody can squeeze to his left and beat them in a primary. But it's very simple to unify a party when everyone in your party wants bigger government. You can easily compromise on something in between. It's a lot more difficult when some people in the party want bigger government, but other people in the party want smaller government. That is a much harder compromise to make. And it's unfortunate that we always make the compromise and err on the side of bigger government we never compromise and get smaller government. That's ultimately what we need. Hopefully, that's ultimately what we get. But we don't even have a chance of getting that until we have a major economic crisis. In that respect, I guess you could say we're fortunate because we are, in fact, headed for just such a crisis. So let's at least hope that the government does the right thing 
when it happens. But when it comes to your investment strategy, while you can certainly hope for the best, you better make damn well sure that you're prepared for the worst. 